Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast. My name is Sam Forniker. I'm your host for another conversation on Christian faith and discipleship in our secular age. This podcast is a resource of the Ridley Institute here at St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Uh, to learn more about how we're at work providing Anglican formation for emerging local church leaders, as well as developing robust discipleship resources, visit www.ridleyinstitute.com. Um, well, today I'm joined by Dr. Josh Reeves, Assistant Professor of Science and Religion and Director of the Samford Center for Science and Religion at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, Josh, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Yeah. Really uh, glad to have you joining me. Um, I think the heart of our conversation today is going to center on your new book with Baylor University Press, Redeeming Expertise, Scientific Trust, and the Future of, um, of the Church. Um, but I thought before, just before we get into that, um, we could kind of bridge listeners in maybe on, on a more kind of personal or experiential uh, note. So you're up to some uh, really impressive stuff at Samford with the Samford Center for Science and Religion. Um, academically, your focus on the intersection of science and religion uh, is clear. You're a fellow with the International Society for Science and Religion, for example. But your book also makes clear that you've got a personal stake in this um, as well. So I wonder um, if you would, just before we dig into the book, could you give us some insight into the kind of questions that attracted you to this kind of study? And, um, and, are, and are these the same kinds of questions that are still animating you today? Sure. I think like a lot of academics, uh, you write your dissertation trying to figure out personal issues or personal struggles. And so uh, this sort of book, this book on expertise, is definitely shaped by my personal history. In some ways, I think, you know, I could describe it as the book that I wish I would have read 20 years ago. Mm. So I'm writing the book to my younger self. Uh, and so I went to undergraduate actually here at Sanford, uh, wanting to be a psychology major. I wanted to figure out human nature. And then I slowly over time, I realized the sort of questions that we could answer very certainly in psychology were less relevant. Hmm. So you could talk very confidently about, you know, rats in cages and operant conditioning and those sorts of things. But that wasn't really touching kind of the deep things that I was interested in. So I was always a Christian, but kind of moved over to theology. And so the rest of my career is trying to bring these two uh, things into conversation with each other. The, the science side, what is its strengths? What is its weaknesses? What does it offer to Christians? But also, you know, what does Christian, what does uh, Christian theology offer uh, to the conversation as well? Because it really needs to be a, a two-way conversation the way I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Marvelous. So thank you for that. So, um, Let's let's dig into the book. So, redeeming expertise. Um, let's just jump right in. You you've got. I think the book takes as one of its premises um, the idea that many Christians today, and in particular um, conservative Christians or evangelical Protestants, often exhibit what you refer to as science skepticism. So, explain to us what you mean by that term. Yes. Uh, so it could be a little bit confusing if you actually talk to people who are accused of being science skeptics because they don't actually seem that skeptical in some ways about science. Hmm. So I often driving around Birmingham, I'll listen to like conservative Christian radio, and there's often a science minute where they come in, they talk about some new discovery or something. So it seems like they're pretty pro-science. And I think that's actually the case. I think uh, whether you are um, conservative and skeptical of expertise or not, Everybody wants to be on the side of science because it seems to have a lot of authority in our culture. The real question is, uh, do you believe the elites who speak on behalf of science? Mm. So I think a lot of what the issue is, is they, they like science. They don't like the people in our culture who hold the uh, levers of power in the institutions of science. They don't trust uh, the elite institutions. And so um, when you talk to people I mean, they'll actually be willing to try all sorts of interesting medicines, for example, with the vaccines, but they may not be trusting what is being told by, like, um, the FDA or something like that. So mm. it's kind of skeptic towards, it's being skeptical towards elites is kind of the animating issue, I think, in terms of science skepticism. Interesting. Okay, so it's not, it's not science kind of as a body of knowledge in theory. It's more about the the sort of representatives of the the elite representatives of science, the kind of quote unquote experts. 
Yeah, and it will bleed down into theory, right? So if you don't trust the messenger, then you're not going to trust the message. But they will take what they like out of what you might call mainstream science, but then they'll supply it with their own kind of alternative ways of thinking about things that kind of don't fit mainstream science. And so, um, yeah, I think the skepticism towards kind of the mainstream institutions is kind of the main thing that's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I should just say, if anybody is sort of listening to this and thinking, um, and, and, and on the edge of being wrinkled, I mean, I'm a conservative evangelical Protestant here asking the yeah. question. So I feel, I feel like I've got my card carrying ability to, <laughs> to identify here and ask. Um, yeah. And actually that relates to something in the book and that I decided to not get into any particular scientific issue. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think even if you're skeptical towards a particular branch of science, you may not be skeptical towards other branches of science. So my hope in the book is trying to think more generally about the question of when to trust experts and when not to trust experts, yeah. rather than, you know, I'm not a scientist. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to come down and tell you whether any particular theory is correct, but trying to think, take a step back and think, like, what are the principles that we use to evaluate experts and kind mm -hmm. of... Uh, see if we can make any progress on that score. So I would, I, and in due course, I, I want to d drill down into those uh, very things. Let me, let me just ask first, you talk about the, the kind of history of, I don't know, expert skepticism. Mm -hmm. um, can, you, can you kind of just take us on a whistle-stop tour through that history? Sure. Um, I think maybe one easy way to think about it is like the history of like, university education in uh, you know the West. So um, during the creation of most universities in America or in, in Europe, uh, they were God-centered institutions. And oftentimes uh, the way in which uh, Christians thought about the sciences in particular was you were trying to understand God's creation. So it's explicitly framed as a theological uh, enterprise uh, mm. for much of the history after the scientific revolution. Uh, and what really changed um, in America and elsewhere was the rise of a kind of new model of the university where you're trying to not pass on what's been received, but to create new knowledge. Mm. You're trying to bring science into the university. So up until that point, until the 1800s, science was done elsewhere in laboratories outside the university. And then you also have the emergence of new disciplines like sociology, psychology, and they're trying to be scientific in the way that, say, physics is. And so at that point, you start having the emergence of this idea of science as this unified concept, mm. and also the idea that, okay, well, what makes science science? Well, for a lot of people, in the way that it answered it is, it means sort of a commitment to what's called oftentimes by scholars, methodological naturalism, in the sense that to explain something scientifically is to explain it naturalistically. Now, it's not to say that maybe God set up the system, but you have to be somewhat ag agnostic about that. You just have to explain things by their mechanisms in nature, whether they're biological mechanism or uh, through the laws of nature. And so... Uh, because of that, I think a lot of the 20th century story of at least conservative Christianity, uh, maybe low church Christianity, is this kind of struggle and worry about the loss of universities, the loss of faith in universities, and setting up a parallel track of, you know, more conservative uh, universities, which creates uh, an issue of, okay, how in these conservative universities, how do we think about science? What are the principles? How do we know when something is proven or not? So I think in the story of a lot of uh, 20th century Christianity, it's the rise of kind of that fundamentalism versus modernism kind of uh, struggle hmm. uh, in universities and churches kind of um, creates the conditions, the groundwork for um, a lot of skepticism. Now, having said that, I think the full kind of ramifications of that history aren't really realized until after World War II, because I think in the way that the public thought about it, World War II was saved by science. You know, the, you know, Einstein and developing the atomic bomb, all these sorts of things saved uh, culture. And so science was seen as this unifying thing uh, that we will 
invest money in across the board. But I do think uh, towards, um, you know, 70s, 80s, you st see this kind of uh, struggle, this bifurcation between uh, Christians trying to, how do we make sense of mainstream science? Is it something that we can affirm? Is it something we have to deny? Or is there some other kind of midway uh, point? So hmm. I think a lot of the, the uh, I think you could tell a lot of the story of 20th century history of Christianity just with the use of experts, and a lot of uh, the story fits with what uh, I think traditional stories of um, the fundamentalist versus modernist split in American Christianity. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. So at one, I know at one point in the book you talk about two. There are these two different ways in which conservative Christians still, I think, frequently conceive of science. And I, I think I'm using your terms here, that there's a, mm. a kind of, quote-unquote, secular way, and then a, quote-unquote, worldview way. And these two ideas are supposed to kind of, you know, they clash, they oppose one another. Um, mm -hmm. So do, do, do either of these approaches actually quite capture the, you know, a sort of genuine, deeply Christian approach? Well... I'm not sure about the labels. Uh, let me tell you the way I would, in my mind, I think about it. And who knows, maybe um, I put that in the book and it's been a year since I read it. And so maybe, uh, this, uh, you know, I need to go back and reread what I think. But um, I think one way that Christians think about science is that science is just a synonym for true knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so what you need to do is if you're going to prove something really absolutely you can apply the word science to it. And so um, I've seen people try to make theological claims scientific in that way. And in fact, I think you can even understand some of the intelligent design movement as trying to make theological claims scientifically provable in a way. And so that's one way to think about it. But in general, I'm less uh, enthusiastic about that approach because it, I think it lends to uh, a general culture of scientism, where science is the absolute epitome of knowledge. Uh, and so everything that's not science is somehow less, you don't know it quite as well. But I think that's not true. I think there's many things that we know in life that are more confident than we know certain scientific knowledge. And so I think to make scientific knowledge the epitome is, is to uh, misunderstand our kind of intellectual situation. Hmm. Um, another way is to think of Christianity, I think this kind of maybe fits that second way you talked about, as the worldview way, hmm. where uh, maybe science is a worldview in competition with uh, Christianity. And I understand somewhat why people would be nervous about that, because I do think some sciences do try to tell a historical account of uh, the development of the universe or development of life that can be... Anytime you get into a, a narrative or story, there can be tensions with, the, you know, the Christian story or the Christian understanding of history. So I do see why they would be um, worried about that or see that view. But I'm less enthusiastic about that view because um, I don't think what really captures what makes science science, it, it's not just scientists sitting up in their armchairs trying to think about stories of how the universe started. I think science is much more engaged physical uh, opportunity or um, a physical skill that you uh, do in the world. And so scientists measure, they manipulate, they experiment, they have all these things that they build up, which is different from philosophy. So it's not just a worldview that they're doing. And so I think once you acknowledge that, then you say, well, Scientists builds up this empirical base of knowledge, but there's always multiple ways of interpreting what's going on there. So it's not as if there's one ready-made story that is attached to scientific data. So I think that's why the worldview uh, isn't the best way to think about what science does. Mm. And so to me, the last way is I tend to think of science as a good tool, but it's limited, maybe is the way that, that I think about it. So there are some things in our world that can be explained pretty well naturalistically. Um, I think, um, you know, if you go to your car mechanic that you uh, want a naturalistic answer, you want, if your car mechanic said, well, there's, a, you know, there's an engine ferry in there, that's why your engine is messed up, you, you know, you'd go down to a new me mechanic because there's some things that you're expecting. But having said that, as C.S. Lewis argued, naturalism, if you take it all the way to its logical conclusion, it collapses on itself. 
when you try to tell a naturalistic story about the brain or about the self or about human nature, then we're all just, you know, particles bumping into each other. And so I think uh, science does really well in those parts of reality that can be uh, understood kind of mechanistically about things that you can take apart and understand the parts. But things that have to do with purpose and understanding values and um, human nature, I think science is much less equipped to answer those sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. So I think science is a good tool, um, but it is a loud, I think someone said one time, it's a good medicine, but a lousy meal, maybe is a way to think about it. Yeah, that's uh, good. So it has its own uh, regime where it's, or domain where it's really applicable, useful, but then uh, the mistake is trying to make all of uh, reality explained through those uh, restricted scientific uh, ways of explaining things. I see. So am I am I right in, would I be right in kind of paraphrasing, rearticulating that is to say that we're, we're, we're on good footing with, with science properly understood, but then scientism is a different, is, is it, is, is this a kind of contrast? So where maybe is it science versus scientism where our kind of methodological naturalism becomes actually metaphysical naturalism? Um, yeah. is, is, that, is, is that the kind of paradigm that, we're, that we ought to operate with here, something like that? Yeah, I think um, any time that you try to use science to explain things that it, it can't really explain, you're kind of giving into scientism. And so I think that if Christians are to trust scientific experts, you have to calibrate it to like what science could actually deliver about our world. And so there's some things that science is good at explaining. Uh, you know, I've gone recently to see a cardiologist, like, you know, there's some things you can understand mechanistically like, like your heart, but there's other things where, you know, if you say that your love of your family is nothing but just a chemical reaction, you know, you've gone too far in terms of uh, what science can actually deliver. Hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'd, maybe this is a good time to kind of bridge into a discussion of, of actually ex experts, <laughs> how we, how we think about expertise, and and you know one of one of the first uh, subjects that you turn to in the book is is the the problem of autonomy, intellectual autonomy, or intellectual individual individualism. Excuse me. So can you tell us about what what do you mean by that and um, uh, is it a good thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, it depends on what you mean, I guess, by intellectual autonomy. So you can mean two different things. You could mean that I have the right to decide things for myself, which I think is a good thing. I don't think uh, we want to live in a society where someone tells you what you have to think or believe. But then there's also a separate question where I have the ability, I have the skill to think for myself. Uh, and one way I often see this expressed at college is that, you know, we're going to make uh, everybody's going to come to college so they can think for themselves. Well, if you take that in a very narrow sense, that means that you can just think about reality without relying upon other people, that you can decide for yourself what things are going on. But if you have such a narrow individualistic understanding of how you know things, then you don't really know much about the world. In fact, I think even Augustine said, um, you know, if you have such a high bar for knowledge, then you would not even know who your parents are because you have to take that on testimony. You have to take that on trust who, uh, that, you know, they are who they say they are. And so uh, if that's the case, then I think the intellectual predicament that we have is not thinking for yourself, but trying to being good consumers of information. Who are the people that we should trust in the world? Where do we get reliable information? And so once we change that, the conversation towards that, then we can, uh, you know, kind of examine where uh, good information can be found and where uh, bad information is. Uh, just one more thing to add to that. I think if you tend to think of knowledge as something that is individualistic, it's just you deciding for yourself, you're going to have a hard time with science because I think a lot of science is not commonsensical. It's not something that your everyday intuitions match up against. So if you're relying upon just your own common sense, then you're going to be uh, very mistrustful of science. So, you know, if you go out in, into your yard and you throw a ball up, it comes straight back down. It does not seem like we're on a globe that's spinning uh, very fast at all. And so there's a lot of common sense 
everyday experiences that don't match science. And so if we could get away with relying too heavily on our own common sense to more evaluating different sources of information, I think our, uh, I think our intellectual situation will be much improved. Hmm, that's fascinating. So there, there are plus sides to situations, appropriate context for, as it were, trusting our gut. But, yes. <laughs> but yeah, then so, that approach has its limits. Yeah. So I just, you know, you have to be aware of its limits. So yeah, I think there, there's times where trusting your intuitions is good, but there's also, um, you realize um, that a lot of your common sense perception of the world um, has to be unlearned when you really go deep into different sciences. And so just be aware of that as you kind of evaluate different sources of information. Hmm. Um, especially I've, I've heard a lot of pastors, you know, talk about a different scientific theory and it's just, they just say it's so obvious that it's wrong, like as if their feeling of it's it's obvious to them is an argument for it, which, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do think intuitions um, are ask good questions that you need to follow up on, but I don't think they themselves uh, can settle an issue. You need to kind of evaluate different sources of information. So on, this, on the subject of evaluation, right, m- m- most of us don't go you know, there's a point beyond which we don't go in our scientific learning. So as you say, it's really, it's about, um, the, the problem isn't whether we trust experts, it's which experts do we trust. Yeah. And, um, and so you use, you use the term intellectual vigilance uh, to describe the way that that can look. So help us, help us think about what intellectual vigilance looks like and maybe Maybe what's what are some of the factors that undermine intellectual vigilance among Christians today? What are you seeing? Yeah, um, I think one thing that people feel nervous about when you say you have to trust experts is that, well, does that mean it's blind trust? Is it just trusting without regarding of the evidence? And I definitely don't think that's the case. One of the reasons why, you know, want to talk about the what science is good at and what science is not good at is you need to have a good calibration of what science can deliver. So if some expert is selling you something that uh, doesn't seem, that goes beyond the um, the reach of science, you can be skeptical of that. So I think critical trust is uh, the way uh, to think about it. And, you know, you're right, there are many things that are going on um, that make that difficult. Um, you know, there's the rise of, um, there's just so much knowledge out there for one reason um, that it's hard to, uh, when you go on the internet, you know, I have my students are in such a different intellectual predicament than when I was going through 20 years ago, because mm. all the knowledge that I had was in the library that had been vetted for you. But now you can find information anywhere. And so trying to figure out uh, what is good information for bad is uh, an issue. Um, I think the kind of political polarization in our country is also making it worse. You know, because um, in the 60s, I think the survey showed that uh, scientists were equally on Republican-Democrat in terms of voting, but now um, it's gone much more towards the Democratic side, which makes people who don't share that political persuasion less trustful. Like, you know, that's that must be one of your political beliefs. And so, therefore, um, that polarization that happens uh, creates mistrust. Hmm. Um, you also think... You know, thinking back to a lot of the churches I grew up in, we didn't have any scientists in my church. And so um, it's easy to talk about scientists with when you don't know one and kind of have um, misapprehensions about, you know, they're trying to take your faith or something like that. You know, most scientists that I know are um, really recognize the limits of science. They can talk very eloquently about uh, the limits of science. Uh, and then maybe the last thing to mention is I think there's always been a kind of a populist element in American culture, which is good, kind of over a mistrust of elites. But I do think uh, science at the end, you know, in the final analysis is a very elite activity. It's only something that um, not everybody can do well. And so if that, if all elite knowledge is wrong, if the populist backlash against elite, all elites, if that's the case, then it's going to undermine your confidence in science and well, uh, as well. And so I think maybe one thing to think about as people think about how they trust experts is, you know, are we against all institutions or are we against 
only uh, institutions that overextend uh, their reach. Hmm. Uh, you know, just like one example, like I saw a survey uh, in Alabama where like 66% of the government of Republicans in Alabama are very skeptical of Alabama government and say that it doesn't reflect them. Where which is, which is interesting because Republicans have a super majority here in the state. You know, they pass everything here, but yet even uh, members of the same party have such a mistrust of whoever goes into places of power that um, you know it kind of uh, is corrosive of political trust all the way down. Mm. So I see that that kind of mistrust of institutions kind of everywhere in society, which um, I think if that's going to be the case, then it's going to make it hard to trust uh, sci certain sciences and what they say is true about the world. That's fascinating. So, okay, so so that helps me understand. In the book, you, um, you delineate these three different types of, and I think you alluded to this earlier. Sorry, sorry if you actually already went into this a little bit, but I'd pull it back out here. Sure. You, you kind of create this typology or model of three different types of expertise, and I think this is really, really helpful. Threefold typology models how we can think about different types of expertise. And if I'm understanding you properly, um, you're arguing in essence that not expert, not all experts are alike. Not in the sense that they're not all equal, but because they they operate with different kinds of expertise. Do I, have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. I think one of the problems is that, you know, if you turn on, I think I even said this in the book, you turn on a TV show and you have, on the one hand, a certain scientific expert, then you have a relationship expert, and then you have a diet expert. You know, <laughs> the word expert gets so stretched that um, it's hard to know what exactly, um, who gets to qualify as an expert. And so uh, what I was really trying to do in that chapter is try to kind of talk more about what science is good at, what where maybe scientific expertise really, I think, um, is to be more respected, and then try to think about where the other sorts of expertise fit in. So that's that was the, the goal of that chapter. Hmm. Can, can, you, can you tell us about that typology a little bit more, break down those three types of expertise? Sure. Um, the first one, I call it physical expertise, and it's the ability to do something in the world. And so one analogy would be like a baseball player. Like, how do you know a baseball player is a good baseball player? Because they do something physically in the world. You can measure the outcome of their batting average or something like that. So in the same way, scientists can uh, manipulate like particles and throw them against like foil in the wall, or you can manipulate something in the laboratory. So these physical things that scientists do um, is a physical skill, which is why it takes so long to actually become a, a scientist because you have to, it's not just about memorizing theories, it's about learning how to do things. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think Thomas Kuhn talked one time about someone who memorizes a physics textbook, but then can't do any of the mathematical uh, problems at the end of the chapter. Well, they're not a physicist because what makes you a physicist is the be, being able to solve the problems of the end. That's a, a physical skill to be able to solve those problems. And if you don't have that, then you're not really, uh, you don't really have expertise. So to me, this is the type of expertise that you have most trust in because there's a skill that you can see in the world that they're doing something that you can uh, measure or uh, perceive that's making a difference. Hmm. Uh, a, a second kind of skill I call conceptual skill. And this is more of a skill of interpretation. Uh, and so there's some analogy to physical skill in that it takes oftentimes people many years to learn how to interpret things well, but it's always interpreting relative to a body of information. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking here of like a historian interpreting a book or a uh, lawyer interpreting a legal document. You're not doing something physically in the world, you're offering interpretation. And so how do you know if this is a good interpretation or not? Well, there's nothing to measure. Uh, so usually in you know the uh, university world or the humanities world to know that you have reached that skill is that the other scholars say yes I'll give you a PhD yes I'll give you this this certain degree and so it's harder to measure it's more prone to disagreement but if the background knowledge is solid and the um, the interpretation has been you know um, grounded in evidence then you can have trust in conceptual skills but then 
if you don't trust the background knowledge, then you could become an expert in astrology or something like that. And you may offer interpretations that are really good, but relative to the, you know, the astrology literature, but, you know, the whole thing could be uh, not worth anything because the background knowledge is, is not fit. Mm. So um, maybe a way to think about it is the difference between playing baseball and then being a baseball commentator, talking about how people play it. So, you know, there's a different sort of skill going on there. Mm. And then the last skill is what I call wisdom. And it has less to do with like the narrow art of interpreting. And it has more to do with integrating that knowledge into other types of knowledge. So it takes um, skill to realize where uh, knowledge can be integrated well into other sorts of things. Uh, and so the analogy I use in the book is uh, you can imagine a scholar of New Testament Greek being able to offer a very uh, cogent interpretation of what this Greek word means in the New Testament context, but might have very little to offer in terms of what that word would mean for living the Christian life or integrating it with other theology. So just because you have a narrow interpretive skill doesn't always mean that you have the wisdom to integrate it well into other sorts of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, this third form of knowledge is the one that um, Christian um, theology, Christian practice has the most to do to kind of integrate that well. So I think, you know, I've heard someone say, like, um, if you're a surgeon, you want, it doesn't matter if you're a surgeon as a Christian or not, you want the best person with the most technical skill. So physical skill can be, um, I don't think your religious perspective can always makes a difference in physical skill. But in terms of wisdom, in terms of integrating, oh, your Christian beliefs make a huge difference in how you think about the relationship of that knowledge into other sorts of knowledge. And so I think uh, helping Christians recognize what sort of expertise is relevant to Christian theology in terms of like making a difference, whether someone's a Christian or not, versus other types of expertise, I think um, is something I, I wanted to help uh, people do in that chapter. Yeah, so I... I, I've benefited a lot lately from just listening to reading uh, Ian McGilchrist's stuff on the brain hemispheres and the way that he talks about um, uh, dis the, the importance of making distinctions but not yanking things apart. And the reason that I bring that up here is <clears throat> it occurred to me uh, the typology I think is really helpful. Um, I think it's one of the two most helpful things in your book. And um, and, it, and it also brought to mind a potential reason that that some Christians uh, and, and, and maybe lots of non-Christians might be skeptical of science. So, you know, physical expertise, you, you talk about it makes measurable change in the world. And you actually you, you really tightly circumscribe that you're like it can do experiments and it can make measurements. I think that those mm -hmm. in that sense. But I also wondered, you know, in terms of applied science. It literally it makes much more noticeable changes in the world and um, in lots of ways, innumerable ways that are good. You know, I've got I've, two of my sons have been born prematurely. They wouldn't be alive if it weren't for the benefits of modern science, for example. Um, but our fallen human nature, we tend to focus on the things that that stink. Um, and so we see some of the effects of applied science in the world the way that our we, we gather around our tables and we might have six people at the table, but everybody's atomized on their phone or, or whatever. So that's the kind of change that people focus on. And therefore, I don't know if this, tell me afterwards if this makes sense, but mm -hmm. because they see that change in the world, it's difficult for them to see um, the difference between a, a physical, it's, it's difficult for them to differentiate physical expertise from that, that other category of wisdom because it all seems so caught up in the ways that a certain type of technology might be changing life in, a, in an undesirable way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so like I think any distinction, you know, when you get into practice, sometimes it's a little bit hard to kind of tease things apart. Uh, and so I think in general, I think having just in general that conceptual map, as you come to think about what are the ways that science is impinging my life, whether it's through technology or through 
uh, this thing I'm learning in my biology classroom or my physics classroom at high school. Like, how do I make sense of what's being offered there uh, is um, important because I think the more that science sticks to physical expertise and the more narrow the interpretive uh, conceptual expertise, the second one stays, the less relevant it really, the rest conf conflict there is with uh, any sort of Christian uh, theology. I think most science actually has no really re relevance to um, uh, theological doctrines. But um, I think it's hard for scientists, and I think it's hard for the general public to um, realize when you get out of the laboratory or you get out of the um, conditions under which your science applies really well to recognize that the real world, real world is always so much more complex and so much harder to describe scientifically. And so I think that's just an important part of recognizing or having intellectual humility about what science can deliver uh, about the world. Hmm. That's, that's, that's a very helpful, that's a really helpful way of, of putting that. Um, I, I think I'm just looking at time. I think we have time for two more mm -hmm. questions. Um, one of which I, I want to make, uh, I, I want to pose about about the church, um, mm -hmm. and then the second has to do with knowledge and the way that we interact with it. Just getting right back to the to the jugular of the book about about expertise. So, um, one first first of those two questions, uh, you talk about you use a phrase um, a, a, in different ways, uh, uh, but the the key word that jumped out to me was exemplar. Um, mm -hmm. And at one point, uh, you encouraged churches to shift mission, and I'm, this is a quote here, mission from education and theological propositions toward theological exemplars, um, by which I think you mean models or paradigms, but, um, but, I, but I might be mistaken. Can you just flesh out what that, what, what do you mean there? Sure. Um, I will say this is, um, you know, I'm not a systematic theologian. This <laughs> uh, I am doing, uh, you know, one of the things about this book is it's so interdisciplinary that you're you're ranging over wide ranges of literature. But I had this this thought I was, as I was reading, especially Thomas Kuhn one day when he talked about exemplars. I was like, hey, this might actually have some relevance to uh, theology. Hmm. So the way Kuhn explains it is that um, oftentimes when people are trying to do science, uh, there's a stage where there's chaos. People can't make sense of what they're reading. People are uh, seeing in, the, in nature. People can't talk with each other because they mean different things. And in this pre-paradigm stage, uh, nobody is making any sort of scientific process at all. Mm -hmm. But at some point, someone reaches kind of an exemplar, which is like a concrete thing in the world, which allows people to uh, say, this is what it means to be this type of scientist. So the exemplars is what unites certain scientists in their discipline. So you can think, for example, like quantum mechanics. Well, quantum physicists can think radically different things about the nature of the world. One can think that we're in the multiverse. One can think that we're in a very uh, probabilistic universe. There's all sorts of things that they can, they can believe. But what unites them is they can all do the uh, solve the equations for the wave function, or they can all do the kind of experiments that uh, underlie quantum physics. So it's the exemplar that unites people, not intellectual agreement. In fact, there's a lot, I think when you press into scientific communities, you always realize a healthy scientific community has disagreements going on all the time. And if you don't have that, then you have artificial conformity, which is kind of a, a, a kind of a suspicious sign, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so there's always going to be disagreements, but it's the exemplar that unites people across uh, time and place. So it struck me that um, in theology, oftentimes we are looking for things that unite us theologically. And I think the, one of the um, lessons, perhaps, um, of the modern world is that we're all not going to be on the same page theologically. We're all not going to have uh, universal theological agreement in the different churches and denominations of the modern world. But yet, if you think about exemplars as uniting us rather than uh, universal beliefs, then you can imagine that someone else is a Christian because we have the same sort of exemplars. And by exemplars, I'm meaning something like really concrete, like 
the exemplars given to us by Christ, by loving our neighbor, by uh, communion, by these rituals that Christ has commanded us. These are the things by which you will know that I'm a follower of Christ in the world. And so we may have intellectual disagreements on sort of things, but these exemplars is what unites us together in the body of Christ. Now, I don't want to have too sharp a distinction. I think sometimes bad theology will lead to bad practice, and so I don't want to have it too too much of a dichotomy, but I do seem like um, my at least my initial intuition is that there's something interesting there about what unites us, uh, you know, in our churches. So like, you know, um, you know, my church, we go to communion every Sunday, so we could be united around the table, even if I don't agree with my neighbor about certain, some particular uh, theological uh, issue. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is helpful. So I, I mean, I'll, totally straight with you, my, you know, my confessional reform, you know, Protestant mind. I, I, I was, I was, I was spinning. I had vertigo as I was reading those pages <laughs> and, um, I had to, I had to sit down under a blanket and drink a cup of tea. And then I, but, but then I, I thought, I thought more about it. Now we've, we've discussed this a little bit, um, already uh, just in correspondence. I, uh, I, w- the way that you've just said, I, I, I think is actually, it's a really helpful insight, um, for the same reason that like, in, you know, in, it allows us to recognize a distinction between the gospel and any old matter of, of theological specifics. So it's, it's not, um, it's not what you're saying, a sidelining of the gospel and then sticking Christian behavior in its place. It is, um, I mean, if I think of Titus, there's the gospel, which leads to public godliness out in the world, um, Mm. renewed life, even on Crete, you know? Um, and so, so this, this actually is, is a really helpful distinction. The exemplar flows again, distinctions, not pulling these things apart. We can make distinctions without, um, without severing things. Um, so we've, we've got the gospel, um, and we're distinguishing it from every theological implication and consequence and ramification, which still might have an... There are elements that are important and significant, and so on, um, but I, but I do think that's, I do think that's really helpful. We've got the gospel; we prioritize it, and the, um, the life uh, pattern or the exemplar that, that flows necessarily out of it. Um, mm. That's, and which actually is a really powerful way of looking at our, uh, the kind of cultural situation of. Orthodox Christians, especially in North America today. I know Timothy George um, at, at Sanford has used the expression, um, I think I think this is Timothy's blood, blood uh, ecumenism of blood or ecumenism of the trenches um, mm-hmm. to describe the, the way in which Christians of, you know, um, uh, uh, Orthodox Christians of, of very different uh, kind of denominational stripes have been united in in, in witness. So, um, I do, yeah, I do find that to be a really powerful, helpful, helpful thing. Um, yeah. And I've been a part of, of some churches where, you know, uh, uniformity of belief was the main thing. And then it was assumed that once we got all on the same page, then the gospel would outflow from that. But the problem is that in order to get uniformity of belief, you have to kick some people out of the church. It has to like, you're constantly like reforming the church for the narrow set of believers, um, and all the while, uh, some of the uh, main things that I think should characterize us as Jesus followers as less emphasis in the church. And so, um, you know, if the intuition is helpful for other people, I think there's there's something interesting there. But um, um, I only had a couple pages to say it, and so maybe there's more. Someone else can flesh that out for me um, more in, a, in some uh, future book. <laughs> Well, let me let me ask you one last question before we wrap up, and 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 it is a big question. So, here we go. Uh, so, towards the end of the book, you you sketch out what it might look like to have a middle ground. You've already used this language in our conversation today uh, to have a middle ground between two opposing extremes, and one of those extremes rejects all scientific findings that don't square with traditional beliefs, right? Um, and and then another extreme simply uh, jettisons whatever belief willy-nilly at the first sign of challenge. Um, and I think from a properly Christian perspective, I think you're suggesting, you know, neither of those passes muster. So you call for a middle way, what you call um, 
Christianizing or a middle way that will, as you say, Christianize scientific knowledge. So can you help us get clear in listeners' minds? What does it look like to Christianize scientific knowledge? What are we aiming for? Mm -hmm. Well, I think maybe the first thing to say is that this process of Christianizing knowledge has been a reoccurrent theme in Christian history, especially as you see different models of nature emerging. So there was like a Neoplatonic model and then Aristotelian, the Newtonian model. So all throughout history, Christians have always um, been thinking about the dominant images of nature of the day and trying to show uh, that Christian theology is consonant with it. Not, you know, sometimes maybe they've tried to, the link was too tight so that if science moves on, then the theology uh, uh, has a rupture. But in general, this is kind of what uh, Christians do, because I think uh, Christian gospel is not committed to any particular philosophy of nature. I think our central claims are historical, which are not uh, verified by science. And so we can be free to look at what science shows us about the world to just say that whatever is the case can be, uh, is not in contradiction with any uh, clear uh, teaching of Christian theology. So the way that Augustine would talk about God's two books, there's the book of scripture, there's the book of nature, and that if there is a seeming contradiction between the two, it's for the interpreter to bring them back into alignment because that is, um, we would not expect any contradiction between God's two books. Mm. And so I think that general attitude uh, characterizes Uh, Christian history. But I think in our own particular day, the issue that arises is is that science is so specialized that it's hard for lay people to really know what science is saying. Hmm. You know, so much of the science knowledge that we get through the newspapers is not the type of knowledge that will last for the next decade. And so um, the problem is, how do we as Christians in the pews uh, know what is good science? And so I think um, you know, one thing to think about is, you know, encouraging more Christians in science. I think um, too often Christian has been, or science has been seen as kind of an anti, anti-Christian activity. But if we get more Christians in science, then we can have a better um, conversations partner about what science actually says versus what it doesn't say. Mm. And then I think the second thing to think about is, if we are going to deal with science well in a way that, like Augustine says, does not embarrass um, our reputation for people who know what they're talking about in terms of scientific knowledge, then I think we're going to need a much stronger church engagement together. Because I think uh, scientific knowledge is too complex to for any one person to have it. And so we need more Christians who are uh, go to church, but also study their discipline to come together with theologians, with people in the pew to talk about these sorts of issues so we can together have kind of a more um, unified strategy. Because I think the ways in which mistrust dissolves, even like trust towards other Christians who study this, um, at least in my neck of the woods, down in Alabama I've seen this, is not overall good for healthy Christian engagement with the sciences. And so I think maybe uh, a more stronger um, church response is maybe one way to solve this problem, because the problem of knowledge is such that either, if you're not going to trust directly what the scientists say, then you need to at least to have some institution, some way of assessing what is being talked about in the sciences. And I think, I'm hoping that the church has a stronger, more healthy response to um, to Christian knowledge, and that doesn't mean automatically trusting what science, you know, what secular science says, but it does mean really dealing with the physical evidence, with the physical skills that's behind science, and if there's alternative ways of articulating what that means in light with. The Christian message, then I think that is a much better way uh, forward. Hmm. I, I, if I, if I, if I can just uh, draw us to a close. I, I, um, uh, during my time in the UK, I, I was uh, 
an assistant minister with the church. And um, uh, Bob White, now retired geologist at, at Cambridge, was at our church, lovely uh, man. And um, and I used to, during my sermons, just just occasionally, I would notice Bob furrow his his brow and uh, notice his his mustache kind of. Uh, twitching, and then we'd have a great conversation after the service, as he would drill in to. I mean, he he would he would lay a really good. I mean, because he's 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 as well as being exceptionally you know scientifically a bright mind. He's he's also deeply kind of theologically astute man, and he would. He'd, he'd push into my sermon, and I came to really welcome that. So if there are any clergy listening to this, I think if you've got resources, um, you know, you can, you can be, a, a, as it were, a, a kind of representative um, figurehead for what this engagement can kind of look like. Um, clergy, we, we, can be a, we can be a good first stop for the, for the conversation um, moving forward. Um, so I, I think we've had our time. Um, Dr. Reeves, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, listeners, do check out Josh Reeves' new book from Baylor University Press, uh, Redeeming Expertise, Scientific Trust in the Future of the Church. There is much in it to ponder. It really is a wonderful tool that will help you avoid cynicism and blind trust and instead cultivate the profoundly biblical skill of trusting wisely. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, do please leave a glowing review wherever you get your podcasts. We want to get the kinds of ideas we've been discussing today into the hands of more and more Christians, more and more local churches. So uh, please do, especially if this episode has scratched an itch, share it with a friend. Um, lastly, look out for the next episode of the Ridley Institute podcast, which will be coming out on December 21st. I'll be joined by uh, two friends, Alice Celio Evans and Jake Griesel, for the second installment of our little sub-series, The New Parker Society. Join us as we dig together into the great reformer William Tyndale's monumentally significant 1526 work, The Obedience of a Christian Man, and How Christian Rulers Ought to Govern. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening. My name is Sam Forniker, and this has been the Ridley Institute Podcast. <laughs>